1 Peter chapter 4 this evening, and we are continuing on in our series through Peter's first epistle, 1 Peter chapter 4, and if you are using the church Bible, you will find that on page 1016, and we are looking at verses 12 to 19 this evening, 1 Peter 4, 12 to 19. Peter has been carrying this theme of what it means to be a Christian living in a world that is hostile to Christians, a world that hates Christ, a world that uh, directs most of its hostility, in fact, to Christians, a world that believers wish were other than it is, a world that uh, doesn't owe believers anything, a world through which we are traveling and we are passing and we are living as um, strangers and as exiles and as pilgrims. And Peter, who knew so well what it was to suffer, has been bringing this theme of suffering up repeatedly in this epistle, and he is setting on the heels of that the theme of glory, suffering and glory, the sufferings of Christ and the glories that followed, the sufferings of believers in union with Christ and the glories that follow. And now he brings again another dimension to the idea of suffering there in verse 12 when he says now very pointedly, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, in 1630, Samuel Rutherford, who is one of the greatest theologians in the history of the church, the Scottish theologian who penned the words of that hymn we love so much, um, the sands of time are sinking. Rutherford was one of the foremost ministers and theologians in Scotland in the early and mid-17th centuries. And in 1630, he was called to appear before the court of high commission in Edinburgh for um, his unwillingness to conform to a set of articles that the, um, that the government had imposed on the church. And in the late 1630s, he was tried for... Um, preaching the gospel, unlicensed and unapproved by the English episcopacy, and he was de deprived of his ministerial office. He was stripped of his ability to preach the gospel. This, in turn, served to be one of the most painful things for Rutherford. And in one of his letters, in which he was comforting others who were suffering, Rutherford gave a little window into what was going on in his soul at this first period of suffering in his life. He says, I dare not but speak to others what God has done to the soul of his poor, afflicted, exile prisoner. His comfort is more than I ever knew before. He has sealed the honorable cause for which I now suffer. He has made all his promises good to me and has filled up all the blanks with his own hand. 
I would not exchange my bonds. He was on house arrest at this point. I would not exchange my bonds with the plastered joy of this whole world. It has pleased him to make a sinner like me an extraordinary banqueter in his house of wine. I love that phrase. When you go through Rutherford's letters, he will often talk about um, the, the, the joy that he experienced in the gospel in the midst of suffering as the king's house of wine, the king's storehouse of the best wines. He understood that God gave the greatest consolation and the greatest joy to those who were trusting in Christ in the midst of their trials. Well, Rutherford, almost 30 years later, experienced more persecution and more trial, and it looked as though he was going to suffer the death, death penalty for preaching the gospel. He was tried for treason in 1660. He was convicted of treason, and in the kindness of God, he became ill in 1661, and before the government could put him to death for preaching the gospel under the charge of, of treason, Rutherford passed away of an illness in peace and in tranquility. And these were some of his last words. He said, I shall live and adore Christ. Glory to my Redeemer forever. Glory, glory dwells in Emmanuel's land. And then he turned and he addressed fellow ministers who were there and he said, dear brethren, do all for Christ. Pray for Christ. Preach for Christ. Beware of men-pleasing. Now, there are hundreds of thousands of other stories exactly like that of Samuel Rutherford, and yet that's something foreign to us. I think as Westerners who live in the 21st century, who have enjoyed so much freedom, who have enjoyed so much explosion of Christianity over the last 200 and 300 years, so much comfort and pleasure and so little suffering, and, and even in our postmodern society, so little suffering, such little affliction for the name of Christ, we know very little of what the martyrs who have gone before us have endured, and we know very little of what we ought to do when that comes upon us. And so Peter is preparing us. God is so wise that he is always preparing his people. He is preparing them for things that they haven't yet gone through. And Simon Peter, as we've seen in this letter, is the perfect person to teach us about this. Who, like Simon Peter, who but Simon Peter knew what it was to be ashamed of Jesus? Simon Peter did not want to take up the cross and follow Jesus. Simon Peter learned, though, when he followed Jesus, that it was a following Jesus to the cross. He learned that integral to his Christian faith was accepting that suffering was inevitable, that suffering was part of the fabric of the Christian faith, that suffering for the name of Christ is a gift that is given to believers that God invests with great meaning and great purpose that isn't arbitrary, that is producing in believers hope and assurance and joy. And Peter, as he has been telling us this in chapter 1 and again in chapter 2 and then in chapter 3 and now in chapter 4, has on one hand seemed to be saying the same things over and over again. He continues to talk about the believer's suffering and the hope of glory. But what Peter does is he takes, as it were, the diamond of suffering or he takes us into the wine house of the king and he, he shows us the different, the different kinds of wine that are stored in there for those who are suffering. He, he takes us and he turns the diamond and he shows the different angles and the different contours because at the end of the day, if we don't get the, the beauty and the many-sided aspects to suffering in the believer's life, when the suffering comes, we won't know what to do and we'll cave under it 
and we'll falter. But Peter now here gives us one of the clearest. He, in verses 12 to 19, gives us a number of explanations about the Christian suffering. Why is the Christian suffering? How should the Christian approach suffering? And he really does this under two points. First, he tells us that Christians ought not to be surprised when they suffer, but they ought to rejoice. That's the first thing he says. Don't be surprised, but rejoice. And then the second thing that Peter says is, don't be ashamed when you suffer for the name of Christ, but count yourself to be blessed. Don't be surprised, but rejoice. Don't be ashamed, but consider yourself blessed. Well, notice what he says there in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as there's something strange were happening to you. You know, I've always taken comfort in the fact that Peter knows that these believers don't want to suffer. There's something comforting in the fact that he, as a, a, a wise pastor, is dealing with a people that he knows don't want the suffering. They don't want the affliction. They don't want the trials. They don't want the persecution. They don't want the hardship. That's, that is part of the fabric of our fallen nature. We want comfort and acceptance and, and, and worldly pleasures. We want, we want our lives established here. And, and there's something... There's something in us that when affliction comes, we, we begin to ask, why is this happening to me? Instead of saying, we should expect suffering to happen. Peter says, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Now, Peter does three things when he tells them, don't be surprised. And then notice the second part. He says in verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. Don't be surprised, but rejoice. Now, that doesn't seem like a natural op- opposite. Don't be surprised. The natural opposite would be man up and take it. That would be, if, if I said to you tonight, what is the opposite of not being surprised by some hardship? I would expect some of you to have said, take it like a man. Or don't be surprised you should have known this was going to happen. But that's not what Peter says. Peter says, don't be surprised, but rejoice. That seems very odd. That seems very unfitting. Why would we rejoice that we're suffering fiery trials? What kind of sick, sadistic person rejoices that they're going through painful and difficult and and life-threatening situations? How contrary to every experience in this world That someone would say, hey, you're going through hardship. Rejoice. Be happy. And yet Peter will set out very carefully for us under this point three reasons why believers are to rejoice and not be surprised when they go through the trials. The first thing he says, he says, don't be surprised but rejoice when we suffer for the name of Christ because we must remember that God has a plan for us in the suffering. Essentially, he's saying, keep rejoicing because the suffering is God's plan. It's part of the plan of God. Now, I think that that comes up when he says in verse 12 that it is a fiery trial. Now, you have to listen carefully here. He doesn't say, don't be surprised when you suffer painful trials at the hands of men. He says, don't be surprised when you suffer 
fiery trials. In the Bible, God is always talking about him being like a refining fire to his people. He's always talking about being one who refines silver and gold, that one of the things he loves to do for his people because we're so far from what we're supposed to be is that he puts his people into the fire of affliction so that all the dross will be purged away and that the silver and the gold will be refined and will come out pure, that the dross of sin and the dross of discontentment and the dross of the love of the world will be purged away. And that is one of God's kindnesses to us. God is intent on making his people come forth as gold refined in the furnace. You know, I also think that in some sense, Peter might have in mind the sufferings of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who you'll know that story um, in, in the book of Daniel, who were faithful to God and who remained faithful and who faced the fiery furnace. And, and they faced that furnace and they said, if our God wants to deliver us, he will, but if not, we'll serve God and not men. That God was in control of that situation, that they knew that God was in control of the fire. Not Nebuchadnezzar, the living God was in control and God was there in the fire with them. God had a plan and a purpose. God has a plan for all the sufferings of his people. Notice verse 12, he says, Do not be surprised as the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing. There it is, to test you. It's not the world testing us, it's God testing us. The writer of Hebrews will often talk about this. He'll say that even in the context, this is remarkable, by the way, their goods, their houses were being taken away in the book of Hebrews. They were suffering at the hands of wicked men. And the writer of Hebrews says, don't despise the chastening of the Lord, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens. You have not yet resisted striving against sin unto bloodshed. There's more sin that needs to be purified in us. There's more refinement that needs to happen till we are in glory. We are never to be surprised at the fiery trials of our lives because God is intent on sanctifying his people and making them partakers of his righteousness. And he does that oftentimes through the trials and the testing that comes against us. Notice verse 18. Notice what he says, if the righteous is scarcely or saved with difficulty might be a greater translation, saved through the many trials that he passes. Um, what will become of the godless and the sinners? Believers pass through God's fiery judgment, through his testing, not because he hates us, but because he loves us. Um, I have a friend who is suffering a great deal and, and he has felt the accusations of the evil one in the midst of the suffering he's going through and asking if he's going through this because of personal sin and, and, and is, subject, is subject to a lot of spiritual warfare right now. And, and I said to my friend who loves the Lord dearly, I can't tell you if this is for personal sin, but I can tell you that God is going to use it for your sanctification. And I can tell you that when God puts difficulties and trials in believers' lives, it's not a mark that he hates us. It's a mark that he loves us. It actually should stir up assurance. The evil one accuses. The evil one condemns. Even when there's sin in our lives, even when we are turned away from God and our backs have turned away and we have gone to the world and embraced sin and God puts chastening in our life, that's a mark that he loves us, not a mark that he hates us. That's a mark that you are God's son and God's daughter, that he cares for you the way a father cares for his child and disciplines his children. 
So there's a purpose. There's a plan in the suffering. God is purifying his people through these trials, through these purifying fires of affliction. Um, John Piper tells this story about the Russian novelist Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was uh, impressed with, he says, the patience and long-suffering of uh, Russian believers. And one night in prison, he writes, in Siberia, a man named Boris Kornfeld, a Jewish doctor, sat up with Solzhenitsyn and told him the story of his conversion, how he'd been converted to Christ. And that very night, Kornfield was clubbed to death for sharing his testimony with Solzhenitsyn. And Solzhenitsyn went on and said that Kornfield's last words were, lay upon me as an inheritance. It was only when I lay there on rotting prison straw that I sensed within myself the first stirrings of good. Bless you, prison, for having been my life. This man had suffered affliction and it had driven him to Christ and it had driven him as it drove Rutherford to embrace the comforts of the gospel and to know more of the love of Christ and more of the longing to be with Christ. Secondly, Peter tells us that we shouldn't be surprised, but we should uh, rejoice when we suffer for the name of Christ because it shows forth our union with Christ. Notice what he does in verse 13. He says, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. There's something mysterious. There's something that none of us could ever explain in words to each other that happens when the believer suffers for the name of Christ. The the man or the woman that suffers for the name of Christ experiences within themselves, in their minds, in their hearts, something that can't really be expressed in words, but the best we can say is that they are entering into experientially entering into something of the sufferings that the Lord endured. They are suffering for him. They are suffering for his name. He is the head. They are part of the body. That when they suffer, he suffered. He suffered for them. He suffers for us. And we are to enter in by union with Christ to suffering with him. If our Lord suffered, we're to suffer. He said he took up the cross. Following him means we take up the cross. We go with him to the cross. We experience something of what it is to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. This is why Jesus could say, blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. There's something that the man and woman who never suffers for the name of Christ, that yet may profess the name of Christ, but who never suffers for the name of Christ, will never understand what it means to, to, to show forth and to experience more of their union with Jesus that they are united with the Savior, that he is with them in the sufferings. They were in union with him when he suffered for them. He suffered for us. We were in union with him. He died for us. We died with him. He was buried for us. We were buried with him. He rose for us. We were raised with him. Now we suffer, and he is with us in the sufferings, and we suffer for him because he suffered for us. And so Peter tells us that we share, we participate, in the sufferings of Christ, and that's a reason for us to rejoice. And then the third reason he gives why we shouldn't be surprised but rejoice, and probably the most prominent, is that we realize that suffering is a means to help us on to the greater joy that we will experience in the day of Christ. Notice what he says there in the next verse. He says, if you are He says in verse 13, I'm sorry, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that, here it is, you may also rejoice and be glad 
when his glory is revealed. There is a, there is a correlation between the joy that the believer experiences here now while he's suffering and the greater joy he's going to experience when he is in glory with the Savior. And I don't understand that because I'm not in glory with the Savior. And I don't understand fully how that works. I know that the suffering now should produce in us the joy of being united to Christ and suffering with him, and that in turn then we know that he suffered and he was glorified and that that glory is coming for us and that there is going to be joy inexpressible, Peter says in chapter 1, and full of glory. Think of the, think of the most joyful you have ever been. Your wedding day, your honeymoon, the day you got your first job, the day your first child was born, whatever that greatest experience of joy that you have had in your life, think about that and think that that is the tiniest little speck of what it will be like to be in the presence of Jesus after having suffered for a while for his namesake. That there is, Peter says, joy inexpressible. It can't even be expressed. It will be ecstasy forever in the presence of the Lamb. It will be Fullness of joy, the psalmist says. We have no idea what fullness of joy is. We're generally full of depression and sorrow. When joy comes, we find the least amount of joy a strange thing in our lives often. And yet, Peter says that the joy we can experience now in our sufferings is drawn out of the fact that there is going to be a joy inexpressible in glory and that the two are somehow related. And so that enables us to even now rejoice, hoping in that joy to come. And so Peter gives us those three reasons. He tells us, don't be surprised, but rejoice when you suffer by your sufferings. And then secondly, Peter says, don't be ashamed, but count yourself to be blessed by your suffering. Now, one of the things that we have to understand is that while many Christians have suffered physical persecution, the martyrs have been burned at the stake, have been beheaded, have been hung, have been massacred in hundreds and hundreds of different ways throughout church history, that that. Behind all the persecution, there's an accusation from those that persecute believers. What Peter is going to do, actually, in the following verses is he is going to introduce the idea of names by which we are associated that the world thinks we ought to be ashamed of. So Peter is going to say, he is going to say that we are insulted, verse 14, if you are insulted, and that's where he's saying don't be ashamed, if you are insulted, for the name of Christ. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, and then notice verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, those are the two names. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, if the world insults you because of Jesus, you're blessed. If you are insulted because of Christ, you are named a Christian, the name that believers first got in Antioch in Acts 18. If you bear the name of a Christian, and you suffer for being a Christian and living as a Christian, hoping in Christ, for the name of Christ, you are blessed. But behind the persecution, whatever form that persecution takes, whatever form the suffering and the trials and the afflictions take, if it's happening in the believer's life for the name of Christ and for being a Christian, the unbelieving world is trying to heap shame on you. You think about the ostracization, the small ostracization you feel if you start to talk to someone about Christ and they became arrogant and 
condescending and demeaning and don't say that name and don't talk about Jesus. You should be ashamed. You should be ashamed of Jesus. You should be ashamed to be called a Christian. And Peter knows what it is. Peter felt that, didn't he? I've, I've mentioned over the last three or four weeks, he felt the shame, the insult of that little girl, that little slave girl, a grown man, a fisherman. Peter is no effeminate preacher. He's a, he's a fisherman. He's, he's pulling in nets every day. The apostles are, are like something on Discovery Channel out in the Alaskan seas, pulling in fish. They are men, and he feels the shame from a little girl mocking him for the name of Jesus. Aren't you his follower? And so Peter, and who better than Peter, tells us now, don't be ashamed, but count yourself blessed when you suffer for the name of Christ. Notice, he gives us two reasons now why we're not to be ashamed, but we're to count ourselves blessed. First, he says that we must remember that it's an evidence that the spirit of glory and God rest upon us. Notice what he says. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. I think what Peter's saying is, if you suffer persecution because you are seeking to be a faithful follower of Jesus, if you are seeking to be a faithful witness to Jesus, if you're seeking to live out the Christian life faithfully, looking unto Jesus and, and, and abiding in Christ and calling on him and, and seeking his glory and honor, and you suffer for that, that is an evidence just like the trials are an evidence of God's love for you. The persecution you endure, if it's for the name of Christ and for doing good, is an evidence that God's spirit rests on you. Notice how Peter describes this. He says in verse 14, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon us. My, my, how Americans need to hear this because if you ask most American Christians, what does it mean? And we're all guilty of using this language. We all have, I just heard Matt Chandler say this, we all have a sneaky, evil, little health, wealth, prosperity gospel in all of our hearts. Little entitlement principle. And if you ask most American Christians what it means to be blessed by God, they would say, well, God provided a good job and a good home and cars and provisions and and, and that's a mark of his blessing. And it is. It is sometimes a mark of the blessing of God on believers that he provides abundantly for them. But you know what else is a mark of his blessing? is persecution. When that's stripped away, when that's taken away, when you are reviled and insulted for the name of Jesus. I mean, I bet none of us in this room have ever said, Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with social ostracization. Thank you so much, Lord, for blessing us so much with being persecuted for the name of Christ. But you know, there's this one little interesting verse in Acts chapter 4 where Peter and John, Peter has finally learned what it is to take up the cross. And they're beaten and they're taken prisoner and then they're sent out and they're, they're told not to preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And they tell the Officials, we cannot help but speak the things that we have seen and heard. We will obey God and not you. And so the magistrates finally send Peter and John back. And as they're going back, the Holy Spirit says, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to 
to suffer shame for his name. This is one of the most wonderful verses in the scripture. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame. They literally were rejoicing and saying, we are blessed to be able to suffer for the name of Jesus. Now, how do we get there? I think we get there by meditating long on what Jesus has done for us. When we get the extent to which the Lord Jesus went to redeem us and forgive us and justify us and to adopt us and to bring us to glory, when we understand everything Peter said about the gospel, that everything Jesus has done, he shed his precious blood, he bought us with his precious blood, he endured the cross, despising the shame to bring us to glory. When we get the greatness of the gospel, then what little suffering we endure for the name of Christ here, as Paul says, is, is light compared to the glory we're going to receive and to all that Christ has done for us. That's how Peter got there. That's how we got there. Finally, Peter tells us not to be ashamed but to count ourselves blessed because it's for the glory of God. Notice what he says in verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel? And if the righteous is barely saved or or saved through many difficulties, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God, God's will, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Peter essentially says, don't be ashamed because everything that's going on in your life, and we are generally not conscious of this, but everything that goes on in your life is all for the glory of God, and we are to learn to glorify God for it, and we are to learn to live in light of his glory. I want to read to you this quote as we close here. John Piper kind of ties all this together, and considering the fact that God is going to judge the unrighteous and that God is going to save, though though it's difficult to be a Christian and And the Christian life is difficult and salvation comes through many difficulties. Yet God is purposing to do all of this for his glory. And so now what does it mean to live for God's glory? Piper says, glorifying God means showing by your actions and attitudes that God is glorious to you. That he is valuable, precious, desirable, satisfying. The greatest way to show that someone satisfies your heart is to keep on rejoicing in them when all other supports for your satisfaction are falling away. I love that. I want to read that again. The greatest way to show that someone satisfies your heart is to keep on rejoicing in them when all other supports for your satisfaction are falling away. When you keep rejoicing in God in the midst of suffering, it shows that God and not other things is the great source of joy in your life. I love that. When you keep rejoicing in God, Even when everything else falls away, it shows that God is the great source of joy in your life and not other things. I want to read to us one verse and then we're going to close. The last verse of Habakkuk, there are all these nuggets in the prophets and Habakkuk is not one of these joyful books. We we tend not to turn to the prophets, especially not the minor prophets, for a lot of comfort, and yet there's tons of comfort in the minor prophets. And I love the way that, I love the way that 
the Lord brings Habakkuk's message to a close. At the end of the chapter 3, he says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on though the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. So essentially, though there's no more material bounty in your life, no, no physical, earthly created bounty in your life. Habakkuk says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. That's what Peter's saying. Peter's saying exactly the same thing, that even though the fig tree may not bear figs and the wine may not come in and the oil may not increase, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will glory and joy in the God of my salvation. May God give us grace to learn these lessons for the time when we may suffer. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that none of us want suffering. None of us look forward to suffering. Our hearts want to turn and run a thousand miles an hour away from suffering, we pray that you would prepare us, Father. We pray that you would prepare us by learning these valuable lessons that that we should not think it strange, we should not be surprised by suffering, but know that you have a plan and that we are to rejoice and that we should not be ashamed for the name of your Son, but that we should commit ourselves to you and that we should glory in you and that we should joy in the God of our salvation. We pray, our Father, that you would take the truths of your word tonight and that you would please hide them deep in the recesses of our hearts and minds and enable us to draw off of them this week ahead and to draw strength from them and that you would be purifying us even through the preaching and reading and hearing of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.